Hello and welcome to ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant, the radio show where events of history are examined through the discussion of books, journal articles, papers, and presentations. Then historians and history buffs ask the question, what is relevant or irrelevant in today's world? My name is Rick Sweet. And my name is Jay Swords. This is the 418th show of ROI, and our guest for today's show is Dr. Amy Bix, professor of history at Iowa State University. We're going to be talking about time, autonomy, obsolescence, inequality, precarity, and work amidst 21st century technological change and pandemic crisis. Our history buffs for today's show are Terry Toppler and Ed Broders. Our show's theme song is Kayla's Theme, written and performed by Mark Zapsabital. And our producer and engineer, as always, is Dave Baker. This is the opening segment of the show called Farouk Tanaran. And today we'll be talking about time, autonomy, and obsolescence. Inequality, precarity, and work amidst 21st century technological changes and pandemic crisis with Dr. Amy Bix, professor of history at Iowa State University. Welcome once again to the show, Amy. Thank you for having me. Well, can you start us off by telling us what uh, piqued your interest in this topic? Well, in many ways, I've been thinking about the history of work, unemployment, and society for a while now. My first book, which started as my graduate school dissertation, was on the history of fears about what's been called technological unemployment, starting back in the Great Depression of the 1930s, but then really extending up until today. So that really got me started thinking about the history of labor, time and work, power and the economy. And then in recent years, I've come back to that with focusing on some questions about technology and work and leisure. And then the crisis of COVID-19 has raised some very interesting questions that in many ways really are pretty urgent about the future of American work and American life. Okay. Um, in your article, you have lots of statistics and, and things that, that I would, you know, I hope we get a chance to talk about. But the one that jumped out at me right at the beginning was the uh, 2013 Oxford study that concluded that about 47% of U.S. jobs were under threat, including technical writers, accountants, clergy, engineers, which we would think of as non-sort of entry-level labor, which is what we tend to think of as being under threat by technology. Um, you then quoted Nobel-winning economist Paul Krugman, uh, who said, small machines may make for higher GDP, uh, but they reduce the demand for people as a society that grows ever richer, but all the gains accrue to whoever owns the robots. Um, and you linked that to the Great Depression. So you know, I was just stunned that, that there were so many jobs, what I, you wouldn't think of as jobs that robots would generally do. So can you talk more about that job threat or that perceived job threat um, and, and how it is driving people's insecurities. Right, absolutely. So in many ways, as I said, the Great Depression really fanned a lot of popular fear about people being displaced from work by mechanization, although that discussion had already started back among economists before then. But the Great Depression, when American unemployment approached 25%, understandably, a lot of people were panicked, wondering what had gone wrong. 
And people couldn't help but notice that one defining trend of the early 20th century seemed to have been mechanization. And so people looked around and the labor movement and other observers pointed to what they saw as displacement of workers by technology. So, for instance, that's the era when the telephone dial system was just being developed, which made phone calling much more efficient, but it also displaced what had been a fairly good job for a large number of women working telephone switchboards. And people looked at the mechanization of agriculture. They looked at the mechanization of coal mining. They looked at a whole bunch of things in the Great Depression, the arrival of talking movies, which threatened to displace the musicians who'd been playing to accompany silent films. And people worried about what they called inventing ourselves out of jobs, the fear that technological change in the workplace was operating faster than people could compensate then as now, actually measuring technological unemployment is actually a tricky question because, of course, invention creates jobs as well as displacing them. But the issue is, of course, who is able to take those jobs? Somebody who's displaced, say, as a coal miner can't turn around overnight and take a job as a computer programmer. And there was a famous exchange in which some economist was saying it all evens out over the long run. And somebody pointed out, yes, but people have to eat over the short run. <laughs> so, so technological unemployment it, after World War II, that transitioned into a discussion of automation, which was a trendy word in the post-war period. And then... Today, we have an ongoing conversation about the growing power of technology in so many areas. So people talk about the development of autonomous driving. So predictions of trucks that can operate in remote fleets without an individual human driver in each one, robot taxis, talk about warehouse robots at places like Amazon, as always, sometimes the prediction of these is that they will come quicker and be more powerful than they actually are. But there is no question that the workplace keeps changing technologically, and the question is how that affects people's livelihood and people's sense of identity. Amy, uh, I uh, had personal experience with some of these statistics in the Dow Jones Industrial 30 that I finally retired from. Uh, I took a group of uh, customers through a factory that I hadn't been in in five years. It was an engine factory in, in Indiana. And they used to hire, have uh, 5,000 people who worked in the plant. And when I was walking around with the, the tour guide, an engineer, I asked him, are you shut down? And he says, oh, no, we, we can't get enough product out the door. I said, where are the people? Oh, it's all done by robots now. Uh I went. I took this group to the uh, our huge, humongous, million square foot uh, uh, central warehouse in in North America, and once again, not a lot of people because it was all robotic. Everything, everything was picked uh, by the computer, uh, and this was in uh, uh, this was in 2010. So uh, I think I beat the Oxford study by a few years. The the thing that that we've talked. Jay and I and our spouses and our friends, uh, and you touched on this, where do these people go? Uh, you know, uh, 
there is effort to retrain them by government funding. Um, but do you, do you have any thoughts on where do these people go? How do they gain new skills where they can earn a living wage? Retraining is a very complicated question. There have been some good government policies, not just in the United States, but in Europe, particularly in Germany, to try to address that question. But it's not an easy matter. And the bigger trend really is, can the United States recapture what some people see as sort of a mythical economy when manufacturing basically made well-paid work possible for everyone. It turns out it was never that simple. Work, the workplace has never been a utopia. We have economic ups and downs, but the record of the American job market has been one of discrimination, where you have people of different racial groups, different genders, all sorts of things excluded or with less access to well-paid opportunities. So it's always been a challenge. But the big question is what the economy is moving toward. And there's been a lot of talk lately about the so-called gig economy, where workers supposedly have more autonomy to create their own jobs and work their own hours. But studies have shown, again, that it's just not that simple. That's not some type of panacea that allows everyone to earn a good living without stress. Um, I want to kind of follow off of that because one of the things in your article that really leapt out at me um, personally because uh, I have a daughter who was affected by the pandemic um, and uh, had to work from home from that entire time. Um, you talked about the, the widening gap between those workers who had some, some control over their work uh, time and those with little or no power at all. And uh, as a school teacher, I got to see that end of, of things quite a bit. Can you talk a little bit about how the, the pandemic made that situation in terms of controlling time worse? Absolutely. So there's been a lot of attention to economic inequality in the United States with documentation that the United States is, in fact, right up there at the top among Western nations in terms of economic inequality. But I think something that's not always talked about enough as much as perhaps we should is inequity in autonomy. Who has the power to control the conditions of work and life and who doesn't? And this inequality was evident even before the pandemic hit, where you had some Silicon Valley companies offering the perk of what they called unlimited vacation time, where workers basically had a list of tasks, but they had complete freedom to work whatever schedule they wanted, as long as stuff ultimately got done. And some people had more freedom to choose their own hours, whereas there were other groups of workers, in particular some retail jobs, such as Starbucks and some stores, became notorious for basically expecting workers to be on call all the time at short notice to handle shifts or scheduling them for a very early morning shift and a late night shift back to back. So there was inequity there even before COVID. But as you said, the pandemic in many ways has 
has really highlighted that, where the so-called essential workers were the ones in in places like grocery stores and mass transit and, of course, hospitals, where they were essential in terms of keeping vital society functions going and literally working to save people's lives. But that didn't always correspond with them getting the power to try to avoid infection, the power to control their work hours, and really in many cases, such as transit workers, ongoing issues such as low pay and lack of labor rights. So for some people, the pandemic has proved to be a wonderful thing in terms of giving them more flexibility if they have the a job that allows them to work from home, if they've got a good tech set up, then the freedom to work from home without having the financial and environmental and personal cost of commuting, being able to have more flexibility to go out for a stroll with your family at noon. For some people, it's been a wonderful thing. But for others, and particularly mothers we've seen who are disproportionately trying to juggle a job with maintaining the home and with childcare while kids are out of school, the pandemic has only seemingly exacerbated that lack of control. So in many ways, it's been a very polarized experience. All right. We have a lot more to talk about, so please stay tuned for the next segment of our show. This is ROI on KALA, St. Ambrose University, 106.1 FM. The 88.5 FM website keeps you up to date with everything KALA, including a complete program schedule for 88.5 and 106.1 FM. Visit KALAFM.org. That's KALAFM.org. Hello and welcome back to ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant, the radio show where events of history are examined through the discussion of books, journal articles, papers, and presentations. Then historians and history buffs ask the question, what is relevant or irrelevant in today's world? My name is Rick Sweet. And my name is Jay Swords. This is the second segment of the show referred to as The Kitchen Table. Our guest for today is Dr. Amy Bix, professor of history at Iowa State University. And we're talking about time, autonomy, and obsolescence, inequality, precarity, and work amidst 21st century technological change and pandemic crisis. Our history buffs for today's show are Terry Toppler and Ed Broders. Terry, as someone who's worked with technology for decades, you get the first question. All right, thank you. Well, Amy, yes, I'd like to know or talk a little bit more about what I call the technology dichotomy. You know, we see such extremes, especially after COVID, or we're still in the middle of it, uh, extremes and challenges in the age of technology. We see those people who are trying to think about going through a digital detox because we've been online so much, and others who have lacked online access. Can you talk about um, this polar experience? Yes, yes, absolutely. That's a great question. So again, these issues didn't start suddenly with COVID. In many ways, the conversation has been going on 
really, over the over a past number of years, and COVID has in many ways accelerated the issues and highlighted them. So, as you say, there has been concern over recent decades about the power, in particular, of information technologies to play an increasing role in people's lives, both individually and socially. And there's been some interesting studies about apps and games that seem to have almost been deliberately designed to keep people going almost in an addictive fashion. And because of that, one of the things that's interested me is that really starting about the year 2000, there was a movement started by some groups in Reform Judaism to reinvent the Sabbath for the 21st century. And of course, historically, going back to the Bible, the commandment to obey the Sabbath was every seventh day should be a day free from work. And it used to be fairly obvious what work was, um, construction, things that raised the muscle, cooking, things that used energy. But the 21st century really has widened but also confused the idea of what constitutes as work. So this movement in Reform Judaism called for reinventing observation of the Sabbath, and the first of the new commandments they put out for obeying a 21st century Sabbath was avoid using technology. And really that started what became a popular movement that spread to some Christian groups, some Muslim groups, some secular groups. It's been called the digital Sabbath, a digital detox, basically one day a week or one day a month or even one day a year where you deliberately put the cell phone down, you disconnect yourself from that constant flow of information to pay more attention to the people and things around you. And the idea is that this is healthy. It, it's physically healthy in terms of getting away from the screen. It's healthy in terms of reducing stress. So in many ways, the pandemic has sort of again, draw new attention to this issue. People talk about Zoom fatigue, where in many ways being able to have meetings online really gives people, again, remarkable flexibility. You can have a meeting in your pajamas as long as you're presentable from the waist up. But just the feeling of staring into a screen all day, really that is weighing on people. And then, as you say, inequality, the students, the workers who don't have reliable connections, who may be trying to do a class at home while their siblings are doing the same thing next to them. They don't have quiet to focus. There are all sorts of inequalities there. So I think that's part of the issue here, coming to terms with these questions that already existed, but that the pandemic has in many ways made more urgent. Okay, Ed. Thanks, Jay. Um, this is a pretty broad subject we're trying to cover today. Um, one of the things that I've read about as sort of a starting point uh, for all these problems um, at least as far as economics is concerned, is the guaranteed the concept of a guaranteed minimum income administered at the federal level. Um, can you talk about that? And while you're at it, what have other countries done about this? 
Right, absolutely. So let me start by saying that I'm a historian. I'm not a policy person or a legislator. So I'm coming at this from the perspective of a historian. But part of the whole question there is the question, what does work mean? And that's really evolved over the centuries. You know, what we're familiar with in terms of office work, in terms of schedules, that's really a relatively new creation. If you go back to the Middle Ages, if you go back to earlier centuries, work didn't generally operate on as rigid a schedule, in part because it was more individual, smaller workplaces, and they literally didn't have the ability to keep time as precisely as we do now. So it's not like there was a boss standing over you saying, you've got to milk the cows at 6.04 a.m. because a sundial couldn't tell you when it was 6.04 a.m. But when you get factories, it's no coincidence that some of the early factories that are built, one of their most prominent features was a clock right on the roof where everybody could see it and the workers knew they had to turn up precisely on time the rules mandated that and of course that makes sense from the employer's point of view you literally can't run an assembly line if half the people are absent but the factory the office they all run on these definite schedules but again to the extent that that's now breaking down to the extent that we have a more fragmented a more flexible workplace the question is you know what happens with that decoupling that changing of work and in particular how does that affect people's livelihood so in particular People have looked this this question of a guaranteed income and other strategies. Some people have talked about the idea of an environmental new deal as one possibility, one renovation in policy that some people are looking at. Some people talk about a universal basic income. Some people talk about a shortened work week. There have been experiments with these all the way through, both in the United States and in Europe and elsewhere around the world. There are experiments. Spain, for example, just announced some experimental moves to a four-day work week. So there are some interesting experiments, but whether those are sustainable is something that remains to be seen. Hey, Rick. Amy, I uh, was interested in your uh, article about uh, flexibility, you know, working at home and uh, the pandemic has driven uh, a lot of people uh, out of offices where they have this uh, autonomy. Again, uh, I was in an industry that started, uh, uh, I worked at home for the last seven years that I, I uh, uh, drew a salary uh, and I had uh, uh, incredible flexibility uh, on as long as I got the work done. And I did do uh, meetings. It was not Zoom. It was WebEx. And I, I had my pinstripe shirt on and all that. And I was wearing my bunny slippers that they couldn't see. But the, the thing that uh, I noticed about that ultimate flexibility is, you know, working remotely with no set hours there's you're still 24 7 you you there's a there is a pressure from the uh from the bosses that uh, you have to be available at a whim uh, and the payoff or the 
the price that I paid was that flexibility. And I was wondering, it's been, I've been out of the workforce five years, so I was wondering what you see this, uh, this remote working, uh, uh, how it's going to evolve and how long uh, would, would you uh, want to guess that it would take before it becomes a standard component of our economy? Well, there are a lot of predictions that remote working is likely to expand over the near future because people's experiences during the pandemic. And it's an interesting it's an interesting proposition. On the one hand, it could make a very impressive environmental difference to reduce commuting. It was really striking in the early days of the pandemic when things stopped to see the reduction in smog and pollution, where birds in San Francisco literally changed the way they were singing because they weren't competing against the background noise. So from the perspective of climate change, it could be a very important step. There are some people who are chomping at the bit to get back to the workplace, a chance to get away from the home, a chance to connect with coworkers. There are some things people suggest, creativity, brainstorming. Some things just work better in person than they do over the best Zoom connection. And yet the office isn't a perfect place for everyone. The office we know can have problems of bullying, harassment, all sorts of issues. Some firms such as Facebook have already announced plans to allow expanded remote working. But again, that's a privilege that's more open to some people than others. Facebook's engineers may have that option and the company may wind up cutting down its physical expensive office space that it owns and rents because of that. But there are other workers, cafeteria workers, janitors for the remaining spaces. They literally don't have the option of telecommuting. Those aren't things that can be done remotely. And it will have a big effect on America's geographic economy. There are a number of businesses, coffee shops, for instance, that have been built basically with an assumption that you have a certain number of people coming into the city at specific times every day. That's what their business model was built around. So abrupt changes can be devastating to workers and entrepreneurs in those areas. All right. It is customary that we give our guests the last word on the show. So, Amy, why do you think knowing about how technology impacts work, the work world, is relevant in today's world? I think it's important because we need to get away from the idea of technological determinism. We can't assume that the 21st century workplace or 21st century computers or 21st century Zoom were somehow preordained and that were locked into a social structure that somehow follows that, especially in the United States. We've been having these debates for a number of decades, but they're still going on. Debates over healthcare access, about economic inequality, about childcare and daycare, about the environment. They all connect to these bigger questions of work and life. And the solutions aren't going to be easy and simple. But there have been times in the past when the United States has grappled with big questions of 
unemployment and changes in work and insecurity, in particular the New Deal during the Great Depression. So I think it really is time for us to be able to extend these debates that we're having with an eye in particular to inequity and making sure that we try to keep an eye on fairness and justice. All right. When we come back, we're going to wrap things up. So please stay tuned. This is ROI on KLA St. Ambrose University, 106.1 FM. You're listening to Relevant or Irrelevant. This series is produced at St. Ambrose University's KALA Radio and has been honored by the Midwest Broadcast Journalists Association and the Iowa Broadcast News Association for excellence in public affairs journalism. You can hear this edition of ROI and many previous programs in this series by visiting Spotify, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, plus Apple Podcasts. ROI airs Friday nights at 9.30 p.m. on KALA HD2 and can also be heard at 106.1 FM in the Metropolitan Quad City area. You can stream this show every Friday night at TuneIn.com. Search for KALA HD2. This concludes our 418th show of ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant. Our producer and engineer is Dave Baker. Our program manager is Rick Sweet. And the theme song for our show is titled Kayla's Theme and was written and performed by Mark Zap Zapital. My name is Rick Sweet. And my name is Jay Swords. We'd like to thank our guest, Dr. Amy Bix, professor of history at Iowa State University. We've been talking about time, autonomy, and obsolescence, inequality, precarity, and work amidst 21st century technological change and pandemic crisis. The history buffs for today's show were Terry Toppler and Ed Broders. This is ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant, on KALA. The views expressed on this show are not necessarily those of St. Ambrose University or KALA. We would like to wish all of our listeners to experience the great Basutu proverb, Hotza Pula Nala, peace, reign, and prosperity. And remember, historians are horrible fortune tellers. Good night. Mm-hmm.